a part of a missions trip back in 2017 to go to Beirut, Lebanon. That was a transformational moment in my life, and I learned so much during that time. Some of the sights and sounds that I saw and heard changed my faith. It strengthened my faith. One of the tragedies, though, was I saw some of the ripple effects of the Lebanese civil war that happened in the 1970s, in the 80s, and the 90s. There were some truly heartbreaking things that I witnessed there. And out of the thousands of stories, I learned about one woman's story. Her name is Mary Corey, and I just want to be able to read this to you, just a quick snapshot of her experience during that war. Mary Corey and her family were forced to their knees before their home. The leader of the Muslim fanatics who had raided their village waved his pistol carelessly before their faces. His hatred for Christians burned in his eyes. He said, if you do not become a Muslim, you will be shot. Mary had a simple but profound response. She said, I was baptized as a Christian and I heard the word of God come to me. He said, don't deny your faith. I will obey him. Go ahead and shoot. The report of a gun from behind her echoed in the valley and Mary's body fell limply to the ground. Two days later, the Red Cross came into her village. Of all her family, Mary was the only one still alive. But the bullet had cut her spinal cord, leaving both of her arms paralyzed. They were stretched out from her body and bent at the elbows, reminiscent of Jesus at his crucifixion. She couldn't use them. More words came from the Lord to Mary. Even though she was now handicapped, she knew that God had a plan for her life. Everyone has a vocation, she said. I can never marry or do any physical work, so I will offer my life for the Muslims. Just like the man who murdered my family. My life will be a prayer for them. Mary's story is truly an amazing one, and it brings up so many questions of faith, and it challenges me in my walk with Christ. I just want to be able to share some of that with you today, and it comes down to a foundational question. What causes a person to live so boldly in their faith? I would like to tell you with confidence that I could, given that situation, I could have the response that Mary did with a gun pointed at me. Recant your faith or die. I would love to tell you with confidence that I would be able to respond and stand firm in my faith and declare my faith. But that's easy for me standing here preaching a message to you. In the moment would be a very different scenario altogether. She is what a hero of the faith. And it begs the question, what causes someone to live a life so boldly in her faith? And even if you can get to the place where you can confidently say, I would. I, I would be able to stand firm in my faith even given that moment. There's another question. What in the world would cause someone to have such a strong faith to be able to dedicate their life afterwards to praying for the very people who murdered her family and almost took her own life? That requires more than just a good attitude, a good outlook on life. I would suggest to you, I would tell you that the only way that that is possible for someone to live a life so boldly is through the power of the Holy Spirit at work within them. God's grace so powerfully lived out through a person's life that she would dedicate her life as a prayer for the Muslims 
especially the ones that killed uh, her family. This, this concept, this reality, this gift of the power of the Holy Spirit is what I wanted to talk about today. And I want to take us to the book of Acts this morning as we really examine God's word and find out for ourselves how we too can live lives that boldly in our faith. As you turn to Acts chapter 1, I just want to go through just a couple of uh, introductions to this book with you. The first is that Acts happens immediately after the events of the Gospels. So last Sunday, we just celebrated Easter, Resurrection Sunday. Well, the book of Acts begins where the Gospels leave off after the resurrection, just days and weeks following that. And secondly, the human author of the book of Acts is Luke, the same author from the Gospel of Luke. And uh, he writes with such passion here. And you, you can just see the plan that unfolds as the church begins to grow in the earliest days in the book of Acts. So I just want to take you to a few different scenes, a few different ways in which we can understand better the role of the Holy Spirit as the church was just getting started. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus, the resurrected Christ that is, is still ministering to and talking about the kingdom of God with his followers, with his disciples. And this happens for a period of 40 days after the resurrection. And in one of these instances, Jesus gives his followers a direct teaching in Acts chapter 1 in verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John was baptizing with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. There's a lot going on in here in just these couple of verses. The first is that Jesus instructs his disciples to wait. Just wait in Jerusalem. Now that might seem like a simple command, but it wasn't exactly that easy. You see, the disciples weren't exactly free to just walk about Jerusalem. They were scared for their lives. The Jewish ruling powers have just publicly executed the leader of their movement, their rabbi, their messiah. Now, they have the benefit of seeing and interacting with the risen Christ, which is amazing. But at the same time, they were also fearful for their own lives. So just waiting in Jerusalem was not exactly an easy task. They could have been arrested or worse, given what they had just seen Jesus go through. But Jesus tells them, stay here. I want you to wait in Jerusalem because the promised gift of the Holy Spirit is coming. And that's the second thing I want you to see. Hope the Holy Spirit had not yet come to the disciples yet in the form that Jesus is describing here, in a, in a fullness, in a baptism of the Holy Spirit. See, the disciples, in this period of time, in this situation, we're in this unique space of time. The resurrection had just happened. Their faith had been restored and renewed. They get a chance to interact with the risen Christ, if you can wrap your mind around how amazing that must have been. But as the text shares with us, the Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out onto them. So they were waiting for that. Let's skip down to verse 8. You see Jesus provides a little bit more context with what he means here. In verse 8, he's still speaking and he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And beyond just the geography of what Jesus is saying, I want to focus in on the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will not just come upon you, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit does arrive. 
He was foreshadowing the events of what would later take place in the second chapter of Acts. And just quickly to to go through that narrative, I'm not going to have you turn to Acts chapter 2, but I want to encourage you to read Acts chapter 2. It's one of the most transformational chapters in the entire Bible. Acts chapter 2 describes the birth of the church, the beginnings of the church. And what happens in Acts 2 is, well, what was promised is then delivered on. The disciples say 120 of them were all together gathered in a room. And the Holy Spirit, the blowing of a violent wind, comes in and rests upon them in a way that only God can orchestrate. The dramatic entrance of the Holy Spirit happens as he descends and separates like tongues of fire. And the disciples are so moved, they are changed. They are filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment. The church is born in that moment. The disciples are so overcome by the Holy Spirit, so filled with the Spirit's presence, that they begin to speak in other languages to the point where it confused the crowd that was beginning to gather around them that knew something different was happening. They were accused of being drunk. You can read about that in Acts chapter 2. And of course, they weren't drunk. Something dramatic had just taken place. The Holy Spirit had arrived with power. And then there's Peter. And we all know Peter, right? In Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up full of the Holy Spirit and preaches a message that cuts people to the heart and thousands are added to the church on the very day it was founded. What causes someone to live so boldly in their faith? In that moment, Peter became the rock that Jesus had prophesied about that he would become. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter laid claim to that in Acts chapter 2 as he preached this message full of the Holy Spirit. What causes someone to live so boldly in their faith? What causes a group of disciples who were fearful for their lives to be so bold, to live it, to preach it, to let the entire community know that the Holy Spirit has come? Well, the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit was at work within them. Just one more scene I want to take you to in the book of Acts, and and then I want to draw some applications from it. In Acts chapter 4, you can turn to Acts chapter 4, you have Peter and you have John, and they are still full of the Holy Spirit right now. And they begin to do things in Jerusalem that Jesus used to do. And this, of course, angered The Sadducees, it angered the temple guards, it angered the priests. As Peter and John were going around preaching the gospel, the same gospel that Jesus would preach, and they began to heal people, just like Jesus would do. Well, now, why was this upsetting to them? I mean, if you think about it, they understood that if you take out the central leader, the movement goes away. At least that's what they were counting on. They thought that with the execution of Jesus, the whole movement of this new Christian life, this new gospel, this new way of living, this radical teaching of Jesus would die with him. And now all of a sudden, just weeks after the resurrection, here are two of his disciples doing the same thing that he did. Acts chapter 4 and verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed 
because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. <laughs> they, were, they were so infused with the Holy Spirit, they were so on fire, they were so thankful for the risen Christ, the reality of the resurrection, that they couldn't be stopped and they just kept sharing Christ with everybody. So they were arrested. <laughs> the Jewish rulers were saying, there's no way we're allowing this to happen all over again. We're gonna stop this now. So in verse seven, the very next day, they're brought before the ruling authorities, and we'll read that here. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. Listen to this. By what power or name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we were being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You can almost picture Peter sort of pointing his finger right at the Jewish ruling authorities. Know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He didn't care what was gonna happen to him. He didn't care if they were gonna throw him in prison again. He didn't care any of the consequences that would happen Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, knew that he had a commissioning by God. He had an opportunity, a privilege, and an honor to share the gospel, to heal in Jesus' name. And it was by that power that the man that stood before them was healed. Well, long story short, the Jewish ruling powers decided, okay, we're going to let them go because we don't want to cause an uproar here. But they pleaded with them and commanded them, do not speak in Jesus' name. Do not teach in his name. Do not heal in this man's name. Verse 20 puts a nice bow on this. Verse 20, Peter says, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. What causes someone to live so boldly in their faith? It's easy, you can say, well, that was the disciples. That was different. That was the birth of the church. That was so different than today. I want to tell you that I believe the woman that we read about, Mary Corey, was that type of a Christian. She lived so boldly in her faith. She didn't care what was going to happen to her. All she knew is that she had an opportunity and a privilege to take a stand for her faith by no strength of her own but by the power of God at work within her. So I want to talk to you quickly today about, I believe there are three things at least that cause people to live so boldly that we can draw from the scriptures that we read in the early church as we, just, as we see it unfold here in the book of Acts. There are at least three qualities of a person living so boldly in their faith. And here's the first, is when belief moves from a place of worldview to becoming your very identity. Think about the apostles. Again, they were in this unique space after the resurrection and before the birth of the church, before the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. And Jesus told them to wait. The Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. You need to wait. Jesus was their worldview at that point. They had walked with him for three years. They sat under his teaching. They saw Jesus do unbelievable things. They devoted their lives to him. He was, he was their worldview. But when the Holy Spirit came upon them, Jesus Christ became their very identity. 
That's what the Holy Spirit brings us, a new identity. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once lived as a sinner, and I still am a sinner, but God has made me holy through the grace and the power of God. Well, how is that even possible? Because we worship a living God who died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And when we come to him and yield our life unto God, the Holy Spirit that we receive is that resurrection power of Jesus Christ. <laughs> is your faith still in a worldview place? Or is it your very identity? How does a person live so boldly in their faith? It is when your belief in Jesus moves beyond 90 minutes on a Sunday morning or a Saturday night. It moves beyond a small group existence. It moves beyond a way in which you choose to live your life. And it becomes your very identity so that you cannot be stopped. Secondly, what causes a person to live so boldly? In a word, confidence. Confidence that God is with you. We go back to Mary Corey. It's not easy to stand there as a gun is pointed at you, asking you to recant your faith in Christ. But Mary Corey had confidence that God was with her. The apostles here in the early chapters of Acts, they had confidence knowing that the Jewish ruling authority, they could throw them in prison or even execute them. But Jesus Christ was with them, and it gave them a confidence and a boldness to share their faith, to live their faith in such a way that glorified God. Confidence loosely held is, well, not worrying about what you're doing. And just to take that into a very practical place, for me in my life, uh, so much of my life now is defined by my children. My youngest son, Drew, uh, is a baseball player. And he needs confidence in order to play that game. So me being dad, I take him to the batting cages on a regular basis so he can work on his swing. And partly because he knows I can't uh, throw the baseball as fast as he needs it anymore. He's getting bigger and stronger. So we go to the batting cages and there's a, a dial on, on the speed for the machine and we set it at 55 miles an hour. That's good for him. And Drew has confidence as he gets in there to take his stance and start swinging away. He knows 55 miles an hour is easy. But then I raise the level to 60 miles an hour, even close to 65. And it takes him a little while. But a funny thing happens. He gains confidence when he starts driving the baseball, hitting it really well. And before you know it, he's not worried about his swing anymore. It is just natural because he, he knows he can do it. Translation, translating into a baseball game, none of the kids that he's facing are throwing 60-plus miles an hour. So every time Drew steps into that batter's box, he knows that he can get a hit. Now, he doesn't always get a hit, but he's got the confidence to know that he can kind of like that, only in so much more of a profound sense when you're talking about our life of faith. We have confidence to know that we worship and serve a living God. The reality of the resurrection is what makes all the difference in the world in our life of faith. Otherwise, it is just a worldview. If the resurrection isn't real, then all we have is a worldview instead of an identity. But the resurrection is real. Jesus did die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And Jesus does offer eternal life to anyone who would believe in his name. 
And when we take that mantle of a Christ follower and we carry the name of Jesus Christ, there is power in that name. And we can have confidence that he is with us no matter what obstacles come our way in life. And third, what, may, what causes a person to live so boldly in their faith? It is a legitimate power that the Holy Spirit provides us to live in such a way that we get outside of our own comfort zone, that we get outside of ourselves, that our life is not about us anymore. It becomes about God working and living through us, and that provides us with power. This is not, the, the faith of a Christian is not a self-help book by any means. It is by no power of my own, but by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in me that I can live a bold life of faith. All right. That sounds great. How does that happen? The first step you need to understand is that only happens when someone finally yields their life to Christ. Salvation is the first step in living that bold life of faith. It can't be done without first yielding your life unto God. So if that describes you today, if you've never fully yielded your life to Christ, you understand maybe a worldview about Jesus, but he's not become your identity. I want to challenge you today to take that step of faith and that boldness of faith and make Jesus Christ your identity, your Lord and your God, as we talked about last week. Make him not just the savior of your life, but the Lord of your life. And you will receive that power that God provides us. So we want to live boldly. We want to live as the Holy Spirit has intended us to live, as God has created us to live. I want to give you three characteristics of Holy Spirit-empowered people. It's not just how a person can live so boldly, but what does that person's life look like? I want to just quickly describe that for you. I believe there are three things. And the first is Holy Spirit-empowered people won't stop sharing Jesus. Just look at the, the account in Acts chapter 4 as Peter and John are threatened with prison or worse. And they say, we cannot help but talk about the things we have seen and heard. When you live as a Holy Spirit-empowered person, you cannot help but share Christ through words and also through deeds, through the way you live your life. You can't stop sharing him. What does this look like for a single mom who's, who's working so many hours, she loses track and is trying to do the best to provide for her kids? What does that look like to share Jesus with your kids? Does that mean you have to preach a sermon to them all the time? It means you need to live the fruit of the Spirit in your home, Galatians chapter 5. Allow that to define who you are. So it's not just by words that you share Christ. You share Christ with your family through the way you live your life. What does that look like for the career-minded person that's just stuck in that wheel of just in go mode for a decade or a couple of decades? It means slowing down, taking inventory of your life, Allowing your life to speak, not just of corporate success or financial success, but allow your life to speak as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as a son or a daughter of the king. Won't stop sharing Jesus, no matter who we encounter. Secondly, Holy Spirit-empowered people live a John chapter 3, verse 30 kind of a life. Now, what does that look like? John chapter 3, verse 30, real quick means you have the John the Baptist who had a following 
and he would teach uh, baptism, right? He had a following of people as he prepared the way for the Messiah. But then Jesus comes and is baptized by John, and he has a following. And his following is growing as it should. So John's followers ask him that question of, well, what does this mean? John's response to them in John chapter 3, verse 30 is this. He's looking at Jesus across the Jordan River. He says, he must become greater and I must become less. Living a John chapter 3, verse 30 life, personalizing it for us means more of Jesus in my life, less of me. It means my life is not my own. It means that my goal in life is not to just climb a ladder of perceived success based on some arbitrary numbers and figures and expectations. It means... My whole life is defined by Christ. I want people to see Jesus in me, not so much the pathway I've chosen for my life, but what God is doing in me. More of him, less of me. Holy Spirit-empowered people understand this. They live this. This is what exudes from them. Humility. Is your life about your story or is it about God's story in you? If you are living a Holy Spirit-empowered life, every interaction that you have, every relationship that you keep, every priority that you set for your life, he must increase, I must decrease. Not out of obligation, never out of obligation. If you're a Holy Spirit-empowered person, you do that because it is an honor and a privilege, and you've made that decision to say, this is what my life now is and how I want to serve God and live for him because he died for me. And finally, Holy Spirit-empowered people live a Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 kind of a life. Now, this is where it gets in a good way, crazy. Living a Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 type of a life is, looks like this. You've got great apocalyptic imagery coming together in the book of Revelation. And this heavenly battle plays out in chapter 12. You've got Michael, the archangel, and the armies of God fighting against the dragon, the devil, and the enemies of God. And as those two forces clash, Michael and the archangel, uh, the archangel and, and the armies of God overtake Satan. And verse 11 says this, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and because they did not love their lives even unto death. Let's say that again. They overcame the dragon, the devil, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and because they did not love their lives even unto death. Now what in the world does that mean for us, living as Holy Spirit-empowered people? Here's what it means. It means that we understand that behind every human interaction that we encounter in this life, there's a spiritual reality behind it. As Holy Spirit-empowered people, we understand and we live and we lay claim to the fact that God has saved us, but we have an enemy that seeks to distract us from our mission. <laughs> we are saved by the grace of God, and yet we are at war every single day with an enemy that wants to drag us away from God. We Holy Spirit-empowered people overcome the enemy in our life, the spiritual enemy, Satan himself, by standing firm in the blood of the Lamb. That reality of the resurrection, may it never be lost on us. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the fact that we worship a living God, stand on that truth by the word of your testimony through life 
and through word, you share your story, your life song with others. You allow others to see in you. I once was lost, but now I am found. Your testimony is your life. And third, you don't care about the consequences. They did not love their lives even unto the point of death. Oh, just think of Mary Corey and her example to us. Think of the courage that she demonstrated. Think of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. They knew the risks. They knew they could be thrown in prison or worse, and yet they stood firm in their faith. They did not back down. They didn't just blend in. They did not love their lives even unto death because their life is found in Jesus Christ. What does it look like to live as a Holy Spirit-empowered person? It means that you live a life where you can't stop sharing Jesus with others, that you live a life of humility, understanding your life is not your own. More of him in your life and less of you. And it means that you understand the spiritual reality behind the life that you live. And you are going to proclaim Christ boldly in your individual life, in the life of your family, in the life of your school, in the life of your work, in the life of your friends, and even in the lives of your enemies. You are going to proclaim Christ. There's still one more aspect of all of this that I want to begin to unpack with you. Because we could talk about the power of the Holy Spirit all day long. We could talk about the importance of it in the life of a Christian. We could talk all about making sure that belief for you moves from a worldview into your very identity. We could talk about confidence. We could talk about power of the Holy Spirit and what it looks like lived out. But until you understand how to do that, all this is is an inspirational message to remind you that the Holy Spirit does reside in you. So here's where we're going to roll up our sleeves, and I want to get into the how. Uh, years ago, Gatorade had an ad campaign. I don't think it's active still anymore, but I remember it vividly. I remember seeing the commercials. Uh, the, the Gatorade ad campaign was entitled, Is It In You? And they showed these athletes going through strenuous activities, and they were just pouring out sweat because that's what you do when you're stri You're not settling for anything. You're striving for more as an athlete. And if you really want to be an athlete that gives everything, you're going to start sweating. And the Gatorade ad campaign had the sweat as though it were Gatorade itself. In other words, oozing out of people's pores were purple or orange or green sweat. And the message was quite clear. Is it in you? Is Gatorade so infused in you that it pours through your sweat itself? Now you're going to become a super athlete, right? Well, there's a lot to be learned from that. For us, the question is, is it in you? Is there evidence that the Holy Spirit is in your life? Is it the Holy Spirit pouring through your life so much so that everyone around you knows that you're different? Or do you just sort of blend in like everybody else? How do we live as Holy Spirit-empowered people? How do we live these bold lives of faith? Put quite simply, we need to wake up. Put quite simply, we need to understand that this Christian life that we are called to is not meant to be 
a series of understanding God's truth that we intellectually have up here and live out in our heart when we're a church. Church, we need to wake up. How do we live as a Holy Spirit-inspired people? We need to stop living as slaves. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter five said this. This is how he opens Galatians chapter five. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. When God changes your life, you take on that name, the name of Jesus, as your own. You become a Christian, a Christ follower. You are meant to live differently than the rest of the world. You are meant to be set apart. You are meant to be holy. Not to just blend in like everybody else. And I believe this could be possibly an epidemic of our culture of our Christian culture that we live in is that we work really hard to sort of blend in like everybody else and not nearly hard enough in being holy and being set apart for God's purposes. We know that we've been set free from the bondage of sin and yet we choose in a way to live as though we're still under the bondage of sin. So what's the solution? How do we do this? Be different. Be holy. Be set apart from everyone else. Allow the world around you to know that you are a Christ follower and demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit at work within you. Don't settle for blending in with the rest of the culture. God has called you for so much greater things. I wanna tell you that the very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the very power that came upon the very first church in Acts chapter two, the very power that enabled Peter and Paul to stand up boldly proclaiming their faith, the very power that enabled Mary Corey to stand boldly in her faith is at work in you. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two was not just reserved for that one setting, that one period of time. It was meant to be lived out by every generation of Christian. The wake-up call this morning is that all of us collectively would understand, not just that we have a mission, but that God has given us every possible tool to accomplish that mission. He's given us his Holy Spirit. So let us not be content anymore. I'll use my quotation marks here. Let's not be content anymore to simply do church, to allow 90 minutes on a Sunday morning to define our Christian existence. And if we go for extra credit, we're part of a Bible study or a small group. And if we're really radical, we're going on a missions trip. Let us allow the Holy Spirit of God to so infuse our lives that it pours out of everywhere so that our children know that we belong to Christ. Not just because we tell them, because we live it. May we be so different in our friendships. We don't alienate the people around us, but they know that we're a Christ follower. May we be so bold in our faith that we don't shy away from conversation about faith and the conversation about what God has done. May we stand, as Revelation 12 calls us to, on the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. May the people around us not be turned away from God, but drawn closer to him because of the Holy Spirit in us. So for the single mom 
who is just doing everything she can to provide for her family. How can we begin to live as Holy Spirit-empowered people? Be an example for your children. For the career-minded dad who just is stuck in the hamster wheel of knowing more and more and more I need to keep going for my own career, my own goals, my own priorities, my own financial portfolio. May you stop begging for the scraps of food and may you eat at the banquet table that God has called you to. Live a bold life of faith. For the person that is so concerned about a political cause or a political motivation that you've allowed that to become your identity, may you reclaim the person that you were created to be. Or maybe more to the point, who you, you were recreated to be in Christ. And don't allow your political persuasion or the cause that you are so passionate about to define you anymore. May you be so changed by the Holy Spirit that it oozes out from you everywhere you go. May we set our sights on Christ instead of the things that have held us away from God. May we live out that first commandment to honor God above all else, to have him be our God, not to allow anything else, any other idol to take his place. No other gods before him. And we've done a great job of creating new gods in our culture today. In short, how can we live as Holy Spirit-empowered people by choosing to do so? Allowing the word of God to enter into our soul instead of reading it as an academic exercise. Allowing the worship of God to be so ever-present in our lives that we don't just get refilled every Sunday morning, but that we are refilled every morning. God has called us to such great things. It's about time that we wake up and we start living that. You know, the, the cheesy phrase of go and change the world for God, you know, sometimes we don't even realize how ridiculous that sounds until you actually start believing it. We can change the world one person at a time, one family at a time, one church at a time, one community at a time, one capital district at a time, one state at a time, one nation at a time, until the whole world knows God. He has put his Holy Spirit into your life and given you power to change your world so that collectively we can change the world together. Are you with me? Can we do this together? Let's turn to God and allow the Holy Spirit to guide us. I want to invite you to pray with me right now. Heavenly Father, we give you the glory. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the reality of the resurrection and the gift of God that is through Christ Jesus. Lord, we give you ourselves in worship. And Father, as we give you our life and you infuse us with your Holy Spirit, my prayer is that you would empower us to live as your followers. We take the name of Christ and we want to live that in our families and in our community, Lord. Empower us as individuals. May your Holy Spirit guide this church. May your Holy Spirit guide the lives of the individuals in this church. And may we be unleashed with the power that comes from knowing that you walk with us, that you fight for us. 
that you will lead us through any, any struggle, any distraction, any spiritual force that comes against us doesn't stand a chance because we belong to you. Lord, teach us to live this way in your name. Amen.